Hello, and welcome. You're listening to the Six Degrees podcast, where we will have candid discussions about some of the most pressing healthcare technology topics with industry thought leaders. Each episode contains powerful lessons to help you lead the digital revolution taking place in our increasingly complex healthcare ecosystem. This is episode five, to engage or not to engage. I'm Kevin Baldwin, a professor and healthcare technologist, Today, we'll explore how decision support technologies have the potential to augment provider workflows and enhance clinical decision-making with healthcare hero and innovator, Dr. Joseph Habush. Dr. Habush is a practicing emergency medicine physician in New York City and serial healthcare entrepreneur. He is co-founder of MD Calc, the largest physician-owned medical reference used by approximately two-thirds of US physicians weekly. And if that isn't enough, he is also founder of Vitalis Pharmaceuticals, which is developing a variety of novel therapies, initially targeting multiple sclerosis, opioid sparing pain, and cholesterol. Dr. Habush received his MD from Cornell University, his MBA in healthcare finance from Columbia University, and his BS in applied mathematics from Yale University. Welcome, Dr. Habush, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks so much, Kevin. I'm super excited to be here. Great. Well, uh, you've been quite busy over the last 12 months leading the healthcare technology company MD Calc and still finding the time to treat patients on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you start us off by sharing a little bit about your experience treating patients through the COVID-19 surge in New York City? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It has been such a trying, difficult year for everyone, really, and, and for sure, including us emergency physicians on the front lines, especially here in New York City. You know, when the pandemic hit us here, we really didn't know that much about this disease or this virus or how easy it was to, um, to get it from our patients, how to, how to treat it, how it acted. I mean, we had our best guesses and every week or two, we were getting more and more information um, and sort of relearning how to treat these patients. And, um, I've, it's one of those things you learn about as an emergency medicine physician. I've done some work in disaster preparedness in the past after some hurricanes that hit New York in the past and, um, did some work in some international groups with it. And I still felt despite that preparation, it's one of those things you prepare for, but you don't really, you can't really understand how difficult it is until, until you face it. So, um, Honestly, I feel really lucky to be able to try to help on the front lines during that period of time um, here in New York and, and, and across the country. And not just on the front lines, but using MD Calc as potentially a tool that could help also support this, this, this Herculean effort that we need to make against um, this life-threatening virus. Yeah, it's, it's truly, truly remarkable. And um, outside of that initial surge, what was it like just from, from your perspective to watch the, the pandemic unfold? And, you know, how, how did it affect hospital personnel from the standpoint of productivity and morale? Uh, did it cause hospital patient care priorities to shift? Just what was the, the mood like uh, during this, you know, this past year or so? Yeah, this the mood has changed so many times and maybe I'm just remembering my own mood and my colleagues, but I think up front there was a 
type of excitement and fear that you would think an emergency physician was used to, but I don't think anything really prepares you for it, especially when we knew so little bit about this virus. And upfront with that initial surge, we didn't know, we saw it growing and growing every day. And we could project just weeks ahead of when we were gonna run out of ventilators and run out of space. And we didn't know if social distancing would work or what happened. You know, the closest thing I know about social distancing is from the movie Contagion. From the <laughs> <Mexico>. I mean, <laughs> and I'm supposed to be prepared for this. I mean, and so projecting forward and trying to imagine this scenario where you might have to make a decision on who you're going to have, to, who you're going to intubate, or if you or your colleagues will actually get sick and get out of work. And then how are we going to have enough of us on the front lines? I mean, that was a little bit of a, that was a lot bit of a harrowing experience to try to imagine that. Fortunately, social distancing did work. Yeah. It kicked in before we were running out of these resources. Um, that said, we didn't yet know how to treat this very well. I don't, I, you know, we, we know a little bit better now. It's still a, a terrible virus that when people are sick, we can't always save them. Um, so yeah, I think the mood changed in a few different ways. Another thing happened when the social distancing kicked in and we had this relief of the numbers going down and then we weren't needed as much a month or two later and the volume of regular patients was way, way down. Mm -hmm. I personally, and I think a lot of my colleagues, we talked about this, how we went from the sprint of every day waking up, fighting this battle. I would come home and work on MD Calc and I'd go back and... Um, to suddenly we weren't needed on the front lines. And we kind of were doing a lot more of what the rest of society was doing, which is basically hunkering down at home. Yeah. And I think there was a, a little bit of a come down from that where you, it was, we didn't, I didn't know what to do with myself really. I, I could focus on MD Calc, fortunately, but right. this, it, it, you know, extreme energy that you would be spending sort of literally fighting a battle, then it became more of a marathon. And, and I think um, that was, probably for me, the hardest psychological time, St taking a step back from it and realizing that maybe the battle was over, but this was going to become a long-term thing. And um, yeah, yeah, not being able to fight on the front lines anymore. For, for yeah. A while. yeah. It, it does. It, it, it seems like it, it started out as, as a sprint and then, you know, slowly turned into this marathon that we're still, still running. We're still running. So, I mean, that's, that's, really interesting perspective. And, you know, I know you run two companies, MD Calc and Vitalis Pharmaceuticals, and you still find the time to, to see patients. How do you balance your time? You know, could you walk us through what, what a typical day looks like for you? Oh, wow. I, I don't think there is a typical day for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to say, I, I, I am insanely lucky in my in my life, in my career, that I was given the opportunities that I have, that I was able to go to uh, medical school and learn, have some great education. Um, you know, I was, uh, I studied math and mm -hmm. then decided later to become a doctor. I come from a big family of physicians. Um, my, my, my parent, my mother's a sixth generation physician. So that's me and my sister, a seventh generation physician. And so I turned back to medicine and and then I was able to find a way to combine sort of my entrepreneurial kick and medicine and, and my, my, mathness <laughs> and, and it all sort of you know blends in together I, I can work clinically and MD Calc helps me what I 
what do what I do on the front lines and the fact that I get to work on the front lines and I'm plugged into medicine helps MD Calc, I think, become a, a better um, service for physicians and patients. Um, and same with Vitalis and these sort of um, treatments we're trying to trying to do right now. We're very focused on um, some, some opiate alternatives for, yeah. for pain meds. Emergency docs, this is something we've been facing for you know a while now, the opiate epidemic. So another thing that's really important for, for me and, and a lot of folks I know. So I think because it doesn't feel like work, all of these things I love working on and they're different. So I get to work on different sort of projects on the front lines and then project mm -hmm. work, but they all sort of support each other. Um, I don't, I'm not answering your question because I don't know what a regular day looks yeah. like. Well, it sounds like it's, it's very synergistic. Yeah, your, your synergistic. projects and companies are, are complementary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love to think of ways to fix. I, I, I like to see issues that exist in medicine yeah. and try to find ways that I can um, dream up ways that can I make things a little bit better and then try to try to make those a reality. And once in a while, I'm able to make them a reality. A bunch of other times I can't, but that, that, that's what get, keeps me going across all of these areas. And I think that's the one common thing. Yeah. Wow. So let's, uh, let's take a step back for a moment. Could you share with, with our listeners your career journey? You know, how, how did you get into medicine to begin with? And how did you end up in, in healthcare technology today? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, oh man, I, I, in college, I was pre-med very briefly. I think I did what a, what a typical, uh, my parents are, are immigrant physicians from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, all I knew was science. I went to college thinking I'd be a pre-med and then pretty quickly dropped it because I, I didn't know why I was doing it and, and jumped into um, what I was passionate about and was naturally good at, which was math and physics, mm -hmm. um, and kind of came back to medicine later. So what I discovered, I guess, in college and, and for a few years after college, before I went back to med school, um, was that I really liked the concept of trying to think about problems that exist and, and trying to figure out big picture issues for the problems. I like the idea of not having a path set out, but trying to figure out how to build a path that builds benefit for the world. And the best way I could describe that was this feels entrepreneurial because that's the bucket I was able to, to place it in. And I, I worked on some entrepreneurial projects back when I was in my early twenties. Um, it was during, um, I'm going to, I'm going to show my age here, but it was during the first dot-com boom. Um, and I was really young and I played within that space a bit and discovered I really wanted to go to medical school too. I knew medicine and science so well that, um, I did my pre-meds and went back there. So I had this combination of having done some entrepreneurial sort of big picture challenges, but also wanting to learn medicine, which felt like the opposite of that. Medical, the path, medical path seems a really well set out for you. you. They say jump, you say how high. That didn't feel like what I wanted to do. And I didn't know how to resolve that. And so I looked at this idea of doing an MD, MBA, because it was sort of... Mm -hmm the best way I could say, uh, I'm going to still keep both of these doors open or combine them in some way without clarity on how I could, would combine them. Um, was living in New York City while I was applying to medical school, ended up going to Wild Cornell on the Upper East Side for medical school um, and thought I'd do business school at Cornell. Actually, I helped set up their dual degree program, mm. which I was supposed to go to Ithaca for a year. Um, 
and that's a, an established program now, but I was able to myself go to Columbia Business School um, along with it. And at that time, there weren't that many folks who were getting both these degrees. And it was all, wasn't actually in medicine seen as the, um, not everyone supported this concept either. You know, getting an MBA as a physician, some folks kind of looked down upon it, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to sort of figure out how to, how to, how to create a path for my own combining these two. And, um, and I think I really like that. I like the concept of seeing what was out there, experimenting with it, trying to find advisors in different spaces. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I've just been super lucky. I ended up doing residency. I almost, I flirted with the idea of going straight into venture capital and hmm. business and health and in the healthcare space. Um, decided to do residency and I'm so, so happy I did because I love seeing patients. I love being a practicing physician. And I, I also get to do it while I'm working on these other, other meaningful projects. Wow. So it, it definitely sounds like you, not only did you pave your own path, but you again, found these synergistic opportunities to complement your skills and, and interests in a, a very meaningful way. So let's, um, let's talk about one of your companies at MD Calc. Um, could you share a little bit about the evolution of, of MD Calc? What is it? Why did you start it? Yes. So MD Calc was a service that was started by my co-founder when he was a medical student. And a little bit later, we were in residence together. Um, so Graham Walker is an emergency physician uh, and a close friend of mine. And, um, you know, what he saw was that there were, at the time, a few dozen medical calculators. And, you know, I'm using quotes for that. Clinical decision tools, scales of medicine mm -hmm. that were being developed in increasingly evidence-based ways to help support how a physician made decisions. And these were becoming more and more useful in care and started becoming sort of the gold standard of ways we did some of the work we did. One of the challenges of these scores were that you needed to memorize them, you know? So there's these examples sometimes, and there's still a lot of these examples where you have two calculators that have the same function. And one has been proven to be better than the other in all ways for patients, except it's not as memorizable. And then the other one, the more memorizable one is the one that's used more often, which in some way seems to make sense. But you take a step back from that. That means physicians are trading off their frustration in trying to memorize something for quality of patient care. Mm. And that shouldn't happen. So, so what we were doing, what Graham was doing was wanting to put these all together in a way that would take away that part of the equation, an easy place to go, look it up and apply these tools. Um, and then we joined forces and this world of evidence-based medicine, I think really was starting to grow at that time. This was back 15 years ago now. So, um, and with evidence-based medicine growing, so were the, our subset of that space, which are clinical decision tool scales, scores, calculators, whatever. It's this broad term we use for MDCAP. Mm -hmm. And we were able to grow with that because I think that what we did right was that we were practicing docs on the front lines and we thought like doctors thought and we respected that we wanted to make it non-intimidating, easy to use, but get the right information to physicians at the right time so that they could make the right decisions for their, their clinicians. Not try to replace 
their thinking, but teach them how to best use these tools. And it's just evolved from there. I mean, we had a few dozen scores when we started this. We're now over 650 calculators. Wow. I would have never imagined it grows so big. And um, at the time, 15 years ago, you know, these scores were mostly being used by emergency docs, internal medicine docs, a couple other subspecialties of internal medicine. Now, almost every specialty has different types of calculators they're using in their practice. And hmm. we've grown to be used by um, our best outside estimate was a few years ago, and it said about two thirds of attending physicians and about 80% of residents across all specialties are using us on a regular basis in the US. And it's only grown since then. So um, it's pretty amazing to see how, how powerful medical calculators are and that we could, can be part of that and help, help physicians help their patients through that. We're helping change you know, the way we reach millions of physicians around the world who are treating hundreds of millions of patients and it blows my mind and makes me feel so excited about what, we, what we're doing, but also the potential of what we can continue doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we work with other experts to help make this better. That is a, a great, great story of, of, uh, of growth and, and innovation. Thank you for, for sharing that. So to get uh, into the, the details a little bit more, how do you validate MD Calc decision support tools? What, could you walk us through what that process looks like? Yeah, sure. So, you know, these tools, just to be clear, we don't, we, we don't discover these tools. You know, right. the, 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 the folks who, and I use the word discover because that's really what they're doing. They are, they are discovering something that's true about medicine. It's actually, it's a neat term to use. A lot of people don't use this term for the, for, for the, folks making these calculators, but they're discovering something that when you externally validate, meaning some different physicians in a different patient population applies this calculator or rule, they get the same results. They're discovering something that's true about our bodies and about medicine. That's a really remarkable process. So we have specific thresholds of, of calculators re requiring a certain amount of external validation typically before we launch them. Now, there are some exceptions to that. During this pandemic, like a lot of medicine, we have temporarily changed the threshold and then put warnings in there. Um, and we've seen that across medicine. And I think all of medicine is learning about how to do mm -hmm. that because things are slow in medicine typically, and we have to learn how to work fast. Um, and we work, you know, originally Graham and I could do most of the clinical review because it was these scores were mostly in fields that we were close to emergency medicine, internal medicine. Now it's grown so broadly that we have experts in different fields who are helping us do the reviews of the, of, uh, of these scores before we publish them. That, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, relatedly, we've been talking a lot about user-centered design and, and the importance of building end user workflows that follow these basic usability principles and heuristics. How has this advent of clinical decision support impacted your own clinical decision-making and your now necessary interaction with modern day EHRs? Oh yeah, there's so much in there. So many good, good points in here. Where do I start? So, <laughs> <laughs> one thing as I, a couple things here. One is when we build clinical decision support, what we, I think it works really well when the folks building it, keep in mind, that it doesn't exist on its own. It's there to support the practicing clinician. And each patient in front of that clinician is a unique patient. And this concept of evidence-based medicine 
is great, but it's a blunt tool we use to, on a population basis, create boundaries and rules and suggestions that a practicing clinician has to apply to a unique person in front of them. This works well when we take this clinical decision support and we put it in the hands of the practicing clinician and teach them best how to use it. I don't think it works well when we try to make it something that they're supposed to outsource their decision-making to. And I, see, I think there's almost two different sort of ways of thinking around clinical decision support. And some of it goes to this concept of outsourcing information or decision-making to, to some bot. Um, and for so many reasons, I think that doesn't work well. And I often, and I see folks on the IT side doing that. And I see folks in the, who are on the front line studying it in that way too. I sometimes see studies that I cringe at that say, comparing clinical gestalt, meaning whatever the physician wants to do on there with their pure judgment versus a clinical decision tool. It misses the whole point. The whole point is that we're combining these things together. And that's when it, when it works well. Um, so I think that's number one is when we use these things, we need to do it with the practicing clinician in mind and teach them how to use it best and study it that way combined. And when that happens, we often get improvement in clinical care. Um, and it's something I think we naturally did well at MD Calc, not just naturally because we were practicing docs and we wanted to create something that was useful for us. So we didn't overteach with it. We taught the right amount of information. We purposely try to get away from this concept of outsourcing to these tools. You know, some tools are great at ruling out disease. Other ones have a different purpose. And if you don't know these things as a practicing clinician, you'll misapply them and you won't have as good patient care. So we think constantly about how we can teach that practicing clinician that right nuance. And I would say in, you know, med schools are just starting to catch up to this. You know, when my parents were in med school, you had to memorize a lot of stuff. Now, memorization is still important, but you, there's so many ways you can look up things. It's right. more about functional knowledge. And that functional knowledge includes more and more so every year, understanding of statistics or the principles of how to apply evidence-based medicine. While traditionally, the med school path was more about memorization and screening for folks who are good at memorizing. So I, I think this is something that even though a medical education system is, is slowly adapting to and all of it, all of the shift, I think is great for patient care. Hmm. Fascinating. That, that reminds me of a, a related topic, uh, end user engagement in, in general. What's the typical process to integrate a validated calculator into a clinical workflow? In other words, um, how does an organization typically go about this? How would they partner with you and, and roll out a calculator? Yeah. So, you know, MD Calc has been for 15 years, a website with pretty, um, pretty clean, simple website just has, has the clinical scores and teaches about them. And then mm -hmm. an app about six years ago, about four years ago, we started getting more and more requests from medical centers to build in our scores. And what we discovered is if you, if you, you go and talk to a CMIO, chief medical information officer, or some of the informaticists within a medical system, mm -hmm. almost all of them have multiple requests from different departments. Can you build in the FINA score, the Glasgow Coma Scale, what have you? within the EHR. And they were all sort of reinventing the wheel on how to build it and run into the same issues. It would take a long time to build it. There'd be disagreement on how to have it trigger or autofill or what have you. After they built it, 
rarely would physicians use it. We've done a lot of studies where even with built-in scores that are built in specifically on their own in medical centers, mm -hmm. 95 plus percent of the usage still goes outside to MD Calc, the physicians. <laughs> so there's something about the usability. And then just keeping them updated is a huge liability for these medical centers. And that's hard for them to do. So a lot of folks are running into those issues and asking us, do you guys have a solution for this? The huge benefit we had, I think, and I, within a year, I think 90 plus medical centers reached out to us in one form or the other. We said, we got to do this. It's a little bit of a black box. Mm -hmm. Let's start working with folks. The great benefit we had was that we were already working with hundreds of contributors, partnered with several medical societies already. So we, the way we think at MD Calc is we're trying to do everything on our own. It's let's engage with the, the smartest folks who are trying to help medicine. And we were already engaged with folks. And now we're getting, becoming more and more engaged with informaticists. So mm -hmm. we, we, we could learn from what seemed to work well, the different systems folks did. And right now we have a huge game plan on this new EHR integration that we launched last year. Actually just we're launching as a pilot in 2019 and then COVID hit and we're just really launching it to an early partners program now hmm. where we have a whole set of features we hope to build in over time. And we started with specific, really valuable base features and try to make them well. For example, our autofill, we spent a lot of time trying to think through what's the smartest way to imitate how a physician thinks with this autofill, present it to the physician, engage them in a way they wanna be engaged, allowing them to be in control, explaining to them when we are confident or not confident about the autofill, where the autofills are coming from, mm -hmm. giving them a chance to override, making it look and feel like MD Calc, which we know they like to use. And that, took us a while to build and it's already been studied and the studies are pretty remarkable one study out of the university of utah on a specific cardiology score called chaz vask showed that around 60 percent of calculations were more accurate 60 percent mm -hmm. when done with the autofill um about 30 not always is a different in difference in calculation equal to a difference in treatment. Sometimes you have the same treatment plan, but still 13 and a half percent of patients had a difference in treatment plan based on the autofill versus quote unquote gold standard, which they used as MD calc, a physician entering it. So mm. already just this autofill, which took us time, that's one feature has been changed the quality of care. And we're doing that with a bunch of other features as well now, when to suggest calcs and when to do it in a way that docs don't just click through. Cause for the most part, that's a lot of what happens when we have pop-ups for physicians yeah. and that's being studied right now. Um, and we're going to roll out this year. So there's a lot of really fun, interesting features that I think will be very impactful across medicine. Some of which we've launched and we have a really great base functionality it, right now. And some mm -hmm. of it we're launching this year and next. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think the, the EHR integration will be a game changer and, and will continue to uh, make these types of tools more accessible at, you know, at the right time in, in the clinical workflow. So in, in, um, in my own experience, we often think about what's called the five rights of clinical decision support when we're evaluating an opportunity to either implement uh, or optimize existing tools. And you know, this is uh, the, the five rights are, are making sure that we are providing the right information to the right person in the right intervention format through the right channel at the right time in the workflow. Can you share an example of a, a calculator being used in a clinical workflow and, and how it follows the five rights of CDS? Yeah. 
this is such an important space, I think, because if we're going to do, if we're really going to push the envelope and how we integrate clinical decision support in a way that's embraced by physicians, we have to be really thoughtful about this. And I'm so glad you're, you're thinking of it in the right way here, I think. Um, I, so one of, one of the areas I would point out that we learned is when to suggest a score in front of the right physician or clinician at the right time is critical in a way that they will want to interact with it and not see it as something that's blocking them or distracting because there's a lot of distractions. So some areas I would say when I'm practicing medicine, I get a little frustrated with clinical decision support. Mm -hmm. I'll open up a chart of a new patient that I don't, don't know anything about, or have a specific reason to open that chart and a pop-up pops up and is asking me to make a critical decision on this patient. And I don't know anything about the patient yet. I essentially have noticed, I just have to click on something that tells, tells them I'm not going to make a decision now. And that's just distracting me. And, and it's, and it's not super useful. And I get why people are designing it that way. Cause they're going to get some kind of response if they block it, but you might be distracting that clinician from 10 other things they need to do while they're in the emergency room yeah. or wherever else, if you don't do that properly. So knowing when to have the suggestion, I think is critical and what level to have it appear to them. Another place I think is a common trigger of, a, of, a, of an intervention, a, a clinical decision intervention that tries to have a certain purpose would be mm -hmm. when a clinician is about to make an order. So I'll give you an example. If I'm worried about a clot in the lungs or a pulmonary embolism, there are a lot of clinical scores that help me determine whether or not I should work up a patient for a PE or pulmonary embolism or not, mm -hmm. and in which way. So a CAT scan of the chest has radiation and contrast and, a, and some side effects for patients and there's cost to it and, and that as well. So, so what a common place you've seen built in a suggestion of a medical calculator is when a clinician is ordering a CAT scan. One of the issues with that is if you ask a, a clinician, all right, let's, I'll give you an example. There's something called a PERP rule in the emergency department it has eight criteria. And if you meet mm -hmm. all these eight criteria and you think the patient's low risk, you can generally not have to order any tests for a PE, more or less, right? So a PERC will pop up when I'm ordering a CAT scan for a patient. The issue is I've already seen the patient at that point. I've already asked them the questions and then the exam that I was probably gonna do, I probably already told that patient and maybe even other people on the, people on the treatment team that I wanna order a CAT scan on that patient. So now you're telling me to go back and try to change that. So maybe it'll remind me for next time but generally speaking, I think you don't see a ton of interaction with those tools. Right. And that might be part of the reason, because it's not really thinking about it from the physician's point of view. And one of the reactions sometimes from the informaticist is to build up more blocks and create more steps that, that the clinician has to do. And I, don't, I think it's kind of missing the point sometimes. I'm, I'm not saying everyone does this. I just, this is a common thing you see out there. Yeah. Pops at the wrong time. So how can we get in front of that clinician at the right time and respect the path? Uh, one thing we're studying right now is how there's several different levels of suggestions we can create. For example, in our integration with Epic, we're studying this at one of our um, development partners, University of Utah. 
Um, it's actually a NIH funded research they're doing where there's three different levels of suggestions. There's within the tab of MDCalc itself. You can go to MDCalc. We have a lot of real estate there. If the clinician is looking for a suggestion, we have a lot of real estate we can suggest less important things and more important things. Then we have storyboard, which is right there. It's a, it, in the, um, it appears in front of the clinician, but doesn't block them. Mm -hmm. And what we're studying on is early on before the, the clinician is making the decision to make a, to get a CAT scan or not, you're showing them whether or not this patient may meet the criteria for, again, this rule, PERC rule. And if not, and if they might meet those criteria, what other questions to ask them? That's appearing right there when they first open up the chart so that they go to the bedside armed in the right way with the right questions and have the right conversation with the clinician. That I think will support clinical decision-making. Yeah. Getting the clinicians to interact with that is, is the key. And that's what we're studying right now. We have a little bit of an advantage because these clinicians know and like MDCalc. So mm -hmm. I think we're trying to use that advantage to, to our and everyone's benefit here, but that's what we're trying to tease out. Which suggestions can we put in the storyboard in front of them, but not blocking them? Which ones do we have to, are so important you have to block them? And those should be really rare. And which ones are lower importance, but still important enough to have within the tab? So we're, we're kind of experimenting across this and studying it yeah. with a lot of our partners right now. Wow. I mean, you, you just touched on on so many important points. And uh, one of which is is this big problem in healthcare associated with alert fatigue. And, and you, you know, you mentioned that that oftentimes alerts are ignored. And it's because of the exact scenario you just set up. It's it's not providing any additional value to, to the clinician because it's not being um, implemented at the right time and, and in the right way uh, to add you know, that value. And uh, I think another big takeaway for me on, on, on your response was um, truly um, understanding clinical decision-making and, and how a, a provider's mind works and, and when they're deciding how to diagnose and treat any, uh, any number of, of different types of patients. And I think that's also why it's so important to either engage with physicians directly or in, in the strategic advantage of your case, you are a physician. So you understand how, how you know, physicians' minds work and, and how they're making these very often important and time-sensitive decisions. So thank you for, for walking us through that. Um, I just want to go a, a bit more high level for, for a moment. What trends are you most excited about in the future? What do you think are, are the most promising technologies, you know, in the next, let's say, five years or so um, entering healthcare? Yeah, I um, thank you for that question. You know, healthcare is incredible because there's so many areas for opportunities for improvement where we can work on projects and if we're successful, it helps people, it helps save lives. It's, it's, it's such a, a motivating thing for us all in healthcare. And I know for you and all the folks you're working with as well. One of the things I think a lot about, of course, is clinical decision support and right. informatics. And, and I think there's a lot of movement in this space in a few different areas. And I'm really interested in seeing how sort of marry these areas. You, you see a lot of folks working on um, there's buzz terms in there, AI or, you know, big data, et cetera, mm -hmm. and how we can try to use computing power and all this access to information that we're able to have to help make better decisions for clinicians. And I think it's really powerful and it's going to really benefit patients, but at the same time, 
some folks working in that space, and I spoke to this earlier, I think are shifting away from really important principles, mm -hmm. which is that these be these should be tools that support the clinician and teaches the clinician how to use these tools and relies on clinician judgment. Mm -hmm. We shift away from that. Um, there's so much danger in doing it wrong and hurting patients. And I think a lot about this. Um, one of the examples I like to think about are other areas outside of medicine or historically even within medicine, how technology has mostly gone to support clinicians and not to replace or not to outsource clini clinical decision to that. So right. one example I thought of is when my parents immigrated as doctors to this country 50 years ago, they had to count their own white cells on, from a blood smear. They would put it on the slides and 5% of their time, maybe as a resident would be to look in the microscope and with the little counter, count the number of white cell counts. And that's what those white cell counts are traditionally. Now we have machines that do that. Those machines, that's AI, it's old AI. And yeah. that has replaced something that my parents used to have to do as doctors. And now doctors don't have to do. It doesn't mean that it's replacing doctors. It means that that information is now being presented and we're doing a lot more of that. And that's really good for patients, but we do need to teach the people who are seeing that information, which we're now taught on what that information is, where the information come from and how to act on that information. So, or look at Excel for accountants, right? Accountants 50 years ago, had to do a lot of math with on their own or with a simple calculator. Now there's software that does a ton of this for them in ways that a human can never do. Mm -hmm. But accountants aren't replaced. They're just, they have to learn how to use these tools and interact with these tools. That's how I see clinical decision support. So I'm super excited about all of the areas yeah. that we can move into. And also I want us to move slowly and thoughtfully. So we do it in a way that truly helps patients and interacts well with physicians. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And again, I, I think at the heart of of that is uh, keeping the the end user, you know, in in our uh, focus and making sure that whatever technology or tool or, or decision support we build is uh, helping, you know, the the those we're seeking to help. So, uh, thanks thanks again for sharing that. And um, we're almost out of time, so I just did want to ask you this one last question, and, and that is, um, what advice do you have for our listeners who are interested in leveraging clinical decision support to improve healthcare? Uh, you know, they're, they're interested in, in these, these very novel and, and uh, growing technologies and, and applications of uh, CDS. Um, what, what advice do you have? How, how can they get, get involved? How can they learn about the space? How can they uh, continue to advance the space? Yeah. You know, Kevin, I think you hit it on the head when you talked about think, keeping the user in mind. Mm -hmm. I think what there's a lot of really smart people building better and better tools. Um, the ones that I think are successful and the, the area where we, we there's a lot of potential improvement is how to get those who are actually making clinical decisions to interact with the tools or make the or another way to put it is make the tools usable for those. Mm -hmm clinicians at the front lines and then teaching those clinicians on how to, how to, how to interact with them. So this is an area, I think um, it's sometimes just assume that that would happen well. And um, 
that is where I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit. And I'm hopeful to see folks really focus on that. Some of that might be just user design. Some of it might be um, understanding how to teach some simple principles of statistics um, to, to, to clinicians, to, to patients to some, some extent. Um, another really interesting area is how to express these decisions to patients in a way that they'll accept. Hey, I don't need to get a CAT scan for you. That's really good for you. I know you came here wanting to get a CAT scan because you fell and hit your head yesterday. Mm -hmm. How to reassure that patient. If you ask clinicians, they're often ordering that CAT scan anyway because they think the patient wants that. What the patient actually wants, in my experience, is reassurance and how to get that reassurance. So these are the areas of communication. It's, a lot of it comes back down to the humanistic parts. And I'm a math guy. You know? <laughs> I love everything to be mathematical. Stuff, right. But in the end, medicine, it's so important. There's, it's a human and human interaction. And um, look, if computers eventually replace all jobs in the world, I'm convinced the last job they're going to replace is a clinician's job on the front line. Because when you're sick, you want a person taking care of you. And if if you don't see that, then I think you, you or a close person to you hasn't yeah. yet been sick enough where you see how the important of that, importance yeah. of that is. So that humanistic or mix between the human and this technology, I think is where um, there's going to be a lot of, where I'm really interested in, in, in thinking about. And I think there's going to be a lot of benefit if we keep our eye on that. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we talk a lot about this people process technology triangle, and, and I completely agree. I think people are, are number one. They're, they're the most important part of, of that triad. And you have to truly understand the people that we're building these technologies for in order to, to create effective technology. So um, thank you. That, that was very insightful. And I did want to take a moment just to thank you again for your time today. It's been truly a pleasure learning more about your journey and, and how clinical decision support has already enhanced the practice of medicine and the potential for it to continue doing so in the future. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to the Six Degrees podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. That's all for today. See you next time. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you.